0: I'm in Matthew chapter 10. Some people call this the ordination sermon that Jesus preaches for the 12 apostles, whom he designates in this passage as apostles, his ambassadors, his messengers, his delegates, his emissaries sent out into the world. So you may think when you look at chapter 10, well, that's for the apostles, it's not for me. Well, I got a wrong number last night at 2 a.m. Yeah, my cell phone went off, woke us up. I didn't get there in time to answer it, but I looked at it, and it was from Gatesville, Texas, where my family is. My mother lives there. My brother lives there. Three sisters live there. I had to call it back, so I called her back. She said, I'm sorry, I had the wrong number. I sent you a text. So I looked up the text. It said, my apologies, I have D, just the letter D, space, wrong number. Even at 2 a.m., I was troubled by this. Is T-H-E reduced to D? Is it? Is this part of the code now? It is. All right. I learned something at 2 a.m. today. And I guess I'm probably going to use it now. Like I used the letter U for Y-O-U. I'll be using D for these. So if you get a message from me, just expect it. Of course... I was thinking about eight years ago, August 28th, 2 a.m., we got a wrong number. It's what woke us up. Janet and I were fast asleep. This wrong number came in. We had been doing the wedding for Don and Lisa Cooper the night before. Hurricane Katrina is bellowing in. It has completely filled up the Gulf we were down at the W or wherever we were having a big wedding. Well, it wasn't that big. I mean, there were some holes in the crowd. And uh, we got that wrong number at 2 a.m. And I thought, this must be God. Let's get out of here. So we packed up and left, had no competition for the interstate. 2 a.m. that morning, we evacuated. This is not a wrong number for you, all right? God has your number. He's got the right number. Matthew 10 is for you. Not just the apostles are in this passage. There are other people he anticipates are going to be there to receive them. And I want you to see what he says. I'm going to start reading in verse 9, okay? We've already had the introductory uh, passage where he calls them together and sends them out. Now he's given them some instructions about how he wants them to go. The 12 now, it's the 12, sent out on their initial mission of healing and teaching. It's got to be fearful, it's got to be exciting, it's got to be intimidating for Jesus to be sending them out to do the very thing they saw him doing which is healing the sick, casting out demons, and preaching the good news of the kingdom. Now he says, I want you to go do it. So it's boot camp for them, out on the road, going to the villages and towns, and they're looking toward it, and this is what he tells them. This is how they're to go. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey, or extra shirt, or sandals, or a staff, for the worker, is worth his keep whatever town or village you enter search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave as you enter the home give it your greeting if the home is deserving let your peace rest on it if it is not let your peace return to you If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. A striking declaration of judgment by our sweet and wonderful Savior Jesus as he gives instructions to the twelve. Now, this is a training mission, all right? He is teaching them something. You will read in other places where he encourages them to take a bag on their journey. And when you read it, you might think, well, this sounds contradictory, but this particular mission is short, but it's got a very specific purpose. What resource do you have, Peter? The clothes on your back. That's what you have. I don't want you packing a suitcase. I don't want you taking any extra coins. You've got the clothes on your back. That's the resource that you have. He's going to send them out in that way, equipped only with the clothes on their back. No extra sandals, no extra shirt, no staff, no bag. He's going to teach them that they can trust God to provide for their need. That's what he's going to do. He's going to teach them how to trust God on an active, practical basis for their need, just like you need to learn. You need to trust God. Don't trust in the horses. Don't trust in the chariots. Don't trust in the gold. Don't trust in the silver. Don't trust in your smarts. Trust in God. The clothes on your back. That's what you have. Now, Jesus is used to Traveling like that. I picture him as a very light traveler. Don't you? I think he stayed in other people's homes. He ate other people's food. We sometimes see that with Mary and Martha and their home. He was not a man who had lots of stuff. He had an absolute and complete and amazing freedom from the tyranny of things. Jesus did. Stuff just didn't matter much to him. He taught his disciples, look. God makes the flower, it has better clothes than even Solomon. In all his glory and wealth, he wouldn't dress like one of those flowers. God cares for the sparrow, not one of them falls to the ground without your father in heaven, no one. Look, be of good cheer, don't be anxious. You are of more value than many sparrows. Don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Your life does not consist, he said, of the things which you possess. So go out there into the towns and villages and make your campaign. Heal the sick, cast out demons, preach the good news of the kingdom. Freely you've received, freely give. Clothes on your back. We're missing a person in worship today. Her name is Doris Kelly. She died on Thursday. She joined this church when she was 80 years old, and she demonstrated the grace of moving at that advanced age from a place and a church she had known for decades to come into this house full of strangers. You did that once, didn't you? Maybe you're doing that today. You're in a room full of strangers. You know you're supposed to be here worshiping God. It's intimidating to walk into the little room where you don't know a soul or into the big room where you don't know anybody. She did that. She made the switch. At her home, everybody knew her name. At her church, everybody knew Miss Doris. She showed up at First Baptist 11 years ago, and nobody knew her name, almost virtually. Without the ability to get around much, she walked like this. Without the health to engage in lots of activity, she selected a way to be involved in the kingdom work that made her a well-known figure to many of us. How many people in here received a card from Miss Doris Kelly? Put your hands up. Look around. My hand is up. My wife's hand is up. On our birthdays, on our wedding anniversary, Easter, Christmas, Miss Doris Kelly remembered. She remembered the people who were absent in her small group. If somebody in her little circle, and she always sat right there by David and Dorothy Wargo, and she knew Molly and Macy and all of those folks around her, if they were gone, she'd write them a card. She didn't put a lot of resources into what she did. She sit that, sat down in her chair, she put a stamp on the envelope, and she sent it out. And it is amazing the bridges she built, the relationships she built. She became an important person to us through the care and concern that she showed in this family of faith. You may be sitting there thinking, I don't have many resources. There's not a lot that I can do. There is something you can do. You don't need a lot of resources. Jesus sent them out with clothes on their back to bless people and change their lives and proclaim the gospel. And brother or sister, let's not make excuses, okay? Let's not say we can't. Let's instead ask the Holy Spirit to show us, like he did Miss Kelly, how we can build bridges to people, how we can demonstrate that they are important to us how the love of god can be evident through us through our pen through our card through our word through our encouragement as i told the group yesterday i love miss doris and she loved me okay and i'm a miserable excuse sometimes for a preacher and despite all my failings and failures she loved me and i told them i am not under the illusion that she was perfect but I am under that impression. She was that kind of person. She was saintly and a beautiful person who demonstrated this very text, how God uses even meager resources of strength and and mobility to bless others. The clothes on your back, he said to Peter, James, and John, and then he said, your keep for your work. Now, this text has been used through the generations by people who believe that their pastors should be paid. There are some people who think you ought to, ought to do the work of God free. And in fact, we do the work of God free. When the ambulance sounds, we do not ask the question, can this person really help me financially? We go to the hospital, amen? If the phone rings and somebody needs us, we do not check their giving record to see if we should go help them. We go. We offer our prayers, our support, our kindness and compassion and love to whoever it is not for sale, okay? I can't do that. I cannot favor the rich above the poor in the congregation. My Lord Jesus brings the wrath down on me if I do it. James says, woe unto you if you do that. We cannot do that. As ministers of the gospel, we are called to minister evenly to people no matter their resources. You can't do that either, church member. You cannot say to me, hey, I give more money than most people in this church. You make sure you're there when I'm sick. You cannot purchase the gospel for yourself. You cannot expect that. You go against the word of God, the call of God, and the clear instructions of James the pastor if you have that attitude. You can't do that. Let's not do that to one another, okay? Let's demonstrate what Jesus taught us, what James reinforced. Let's demonstrate the gospel's not for sale, and we understand it both from the pulpit and from the pew. We understand that. We cannot show favoritism and represent the Lord Jesus like he wants to be represented. You understand it? we got to get this. Our tithe does not buy us stock. Our tithe is an expression of obedience and love for the Lord. And we believe that the laborer in the gospel is worth his keep. So apostles, Jesus is saying to them, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, you've left your nets. You're not making a living with fishing anymore. Your, your father Zebedee, James and John, he's on the boat in the Sea of Galilee and he's making himself a living. That's not your path anymore. You're gonna do something else. You're going to these villages and towns and you're gonna preach the gospel and heal the sick and, and minister in my name in all these towns. And guess what's gonna happen? People in those towns are going to take care of your food and your lodging, your housing, and your needs. They're going to care for you because the laborer is worth his keep. Most ministers have at one time or another served in other kinds of ways and made a living. I know I did, and I know most of us do. It's not that we don't have options or choices as pastors and church staff. It's that Miss Faye feels the call of God to be with those kids, and that's where she is right now. And she's worth her keep, amen? And Robert feels the call of God to do this leadership of worship, and he's worth his keep. And Jonathan feels the call on him to take care of our young people and minister to them, and he's worth his keep. And on you go through the ministry at people who do not expect to get wealthy by what they do. will live like school teachers or firemen or policemen, folks like that. That's how we're going to live. We know we're not going to get rich doing this work. But we can expect, and I tell ministers and folks who feel the call of God, you're not going to get rich doing this, but you can expect that the people of God will take care of you. Just like Jesus predicted when he sent his apostles out. They're going to take care of you out there. My people are out there. Hey, I discovered that as a boy. We started singing together. Hey, I was in a boy band, all right? I was in a boy band. I sang bass an octave higher. I'm the third one from the left, okay? I'm 17 years old. And I sang in three to 400 churches when I was in the boy band. And we'd sing, and then I'd preach. And my father always taught us, you're going to be able to live on the gifts of God's people. So me and my three younger brothers would load up in a vehicle when I was 17 and a man in charge. And we'd head off to Woodville or Gustine or Comanche or Cherokee or Winters, Texas, and we'd have enough money to get there and not enough money to get back. If you collected all the coins in our pockets, we wouldn't have enough money to buy gas to get back, to town, to, back home. So we made these albums, and we sold them, and we sometimes received offerings from God's people, and we made it back every time. We learned out there in three or 400 churches in 11 different states singing that God takes care of ministers of the gospel and his people are wonderful everywhere you go because the laborer is worth his keep and Jesus said they're going to take care of you he also said hospitality from worthy people will come your way People are going to open their doors and their hearts to you. And we found that out. We found out that staying in the homes of strangers was sometimes the greatest blessing we could ever have imagined. That hospitality was wonderful. And that people loved us, even though they didn't know us very well and we were just showing up to pray, preach, and sing in their church. They loved us. And we experienced that, all right? It's one of the great experiences. Hey, hospitality is a two-way street. It's not just the person who's looking for a place to stay. It's the person who provides a place to stay that often gets the blessing. There are two opportunities in your worship guide today and a table out in the lobby for you to go by afterward where you can say, I want to show hospitality to a stranger. And you can be the one who invites them into your home. Many of us did hospitality right after Katrina. Did you do hospitality? I mean, people were hospitable to us. They bought us our meals in the restaurants when they learned that we were Katrina evacuees. They wouldn't even let us pay for our meals up there in Minden, Louisiana. And everywhere we went, they were just caring for us. We stayed in the homes of strangers while we were gone. We also took care of strangers in our home. We found out we could put 10 chairs around our table if we put the leaf in and we could serve sawmill gravy and biscuits and sausage in the morning and we could take care of a crew and we did it over and over again like many of you did after Katrina because they were coming in and they were worth their keep. They had their chainsaws and we were going to, Take care of them while they were here. I remember one of the group leaders came to me and he said, Hey, our group is here and they're staying with you. And the fellow up in your music room, he's a guy who was homeless in our town. And we've been working with him. I hope it's okay that he's here. I said, No problem. We're glad he's here. We're glad he's here. He was a snaggletooth kind of guy. Probably in his 60s. I don't think he'd ever been to a dentist. But I know he brushed his teeth. Because right before he left, he came to me and said, "Say, I just want to thank you for the use of the toothbrush and a half bath there. Was in a drawer, and uh, it was kind of different living arrangements back right after Katrina. You know, Rebecca was staying; our daughter was staying with us for a while. She's actually using that bathroom, sort of her base. It was her toothbrush. The man had been using. I haven't told her yet. All right, if one of you, if one of you feels courageous enough to tell her that the homeless man was using her toothbrush, just go ahead and grab her and let her know. <laughs> It's a different world when you open your home and you open your heart. You're not sure what's going to happen. Some of you may be a little bit reluctant to open your home because you're not sure who it's going to be, who's going to come in there, what they're going to do. But the Bible says, those of you who have shown hospitality to strangers, you have entertained angels without knowing it. I believe I entertained some angels without knowing it. I had the opportunity to have folks in my home and now in my heart through that hospitality. Jesus says, when you get out there in those towns, go by the drugstore, go by the grocery store, go to the fish market and ask them, is there a person in this town of unusual character, somebody with integrity and honesty and a generous heart? Anybody come to mind that stands out in the crowd? And when you get the name, you go to the house. You knock on the door. And you say, I'm Peter, and I'm a follower of Jesus, and we're preaching the good news of the kingdom in town today. Is there any way I could stay here tonight? You search them out, because there are people like that in every community who just stand out in the crowd. And the folks at the store will know them, and you'll get their name. I read through that, and one of the thoughts I had was, God... I want my name to be one of those that shows up. When people think of a person of good character, of sound judgment, of a generous heart, I hope they might think of me. Maybe they think of you. Maybe your name would come to mind if they were just looking and searching in town for somebody of unusual character. Wouldn't it be nice to know that you had surfaced and that was your reputation and you got the knock on the door and you got the call? Jesus also prepared his disciples for the reality that sometimes they would be rejected. And he wanted them to have confidence in rejection, all right? And it's very important for you to have confidence in rejection. Rejection is tough. When people say, no, I don't want you here, that's tough on us. It's hard on us emotionally. It's hard on us psychologically. It's hard on our self-esteem. We begin to wonder if we're broken, if there's something wrong with us when we get rejection. And Jesus knew as he sent them to the towns and the villages around that there were going to be times that even though a person had a reputation of sound judgment and good character, when they got to that house for whatever reasons, that home would not be open to the peace of God. It would not be open to the good news of the kingdom. It would not be open to their message, and they would not be welcome there. And you don't want to stay where you're not welcome. When I read that, I thought, there are really people who, though they may have a reputation, the peace of God bounces off their heart and home, it cannot get in. The normal Semitic greeting is, peace be with you, the beautiful word shalom. They speak the greeting. The greeting has a power all its own. Turned loose into the atmosphere in that home. When the peace of God is spoken, it has a living presence in the home. And if the home is ready to receive it, that peace rests on it. And there is a sense of atmosphere in the home of the presence and power of God. His peace has rested on that home. And sometimes there is a sense that the peace is not welcome here. If God were to speak his peace upon your home, would it rest there? Could you go into your house in just a little bit and say out into the air in your home, peace of God, rest here. Could you speak peace to your home and your family and your own heart? And would it be received? Can peace get into you? Are you living in a shell that rejects peace? Are circumstances such in your life that peace can't get in? Are you in perpetual turmoil? Are you anxious and can't get out? Are you trapped in a rat race of mind from which you cannot be delivered? Can you receive the peace of God? this judgment troubles me." Jesus says it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for the towns and homes that turn you down. I can't think of two cities that more exemplify and illustrate the judgment of God than Sodom and Gomorrah. They are infamous in the language and literature of our day. From times gone by, from time immemorial, through generations and millennia of human history, they have represented the worst judgment of God imaginable on a community, fire, and and brimstone raining down from heaven and destroying every single inhabitant in the home. And Jesus says, if a town says to you, we don't want the kingdom of God here, you're not welcome here, we don't want that message, it will be more tolerable, it'll be easier for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. And I said to myself, why? Why will the judgment of God fall so severely on the town? that rejects the message in the presence of the gospel. Because in Sodom, they never sang a song about Jesus. They never heard the message of Jesus. The good news of the kingdom was never proclaimed like Peter, James, and John spoke it in those towns. And the best thing God ever did was Jesus the highest revelation he ever made to the human race was Jesus of Nazareth, his own son in flesh. It was the climactic word of God to the whole human race. And when you turn this down, it is the highest insult to the one who made the world and made you and sent his son to deliver you, to turn him down. It's the greatest insult to the creator that a man can give. God poured all that he was into his deliverer, this savior, this unique one and only, Jesus. And when you say no to him, you reject God's highest revelation. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. There are people who have never heard the name of Jesus. Sometimes you wonder, what will happen to them? I'm more worried about the people who have heard the name of Jesus and said, nope, not for me. You heard the good news. You know its name. You've been exposed to the truth that God became man in Jesus of Nazareth. You know about the cross and the price that Jesus paid on that cross for your sin and your deliverance. You have knowledge for which you are responsible. It is the best news human ears ever heard. If I were you, I'd not waste another minute or hour or day. I'd say today, Lord Jesus, I want you in my life. I want you as my Savior. I am not going to leave this place without having you in my life and making peace with my God through what you did on the cross. You say, well, I don't like that way. Well, it's the only way. Not because I say it, but because Jesus said it. You'd never know God unless he revealed himself to you. You're not smart enough, knowledgeable enough, experienced enough to discover the God of the universe on your own. What you had to have was revelation God coming to rescue you, to find you, search for you, chase you down, and love you to himself. And he has done all that through his son Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sin, and now waits for your answer the question of a lifetime the question by which we are judged what will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ let's bow together if you've never trusted Christ as Savior why not open your heart to him now and receive the peace of God why not do it what holds you back Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would convict us of our need for a Savior, our need of forgiveness, that you would bring men and women, young people, to yourself. God, forgive us when we've been resistant to your Spirit. Help us to hear your call and answer. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.